Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you have problems pairing and grain? Have you tried making moldings with a combination plane only to be frustrated? Would you like to make sliding dovetails by hand but aren't sure how? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 35 of the show for September 26th, 2018. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank our new patrons. Thanks to Roberto Hogan, Alex Young, and Rob Bennett. Thank you all for signing up to support the show, and thank you to all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. Your support helps to keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking, and if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. So not too much going on in the shop recently. Uh, I did just finish up a, a private class a little over a week ago and that went really really well it was actually uh, one of our one of the show's patrons came down and uh, spent the weekend and uh, we did a, a private class on building a, a boarded cupboard and it was the class went really well and uh, I had a, a great time and a great weekend and uh, Brian did really well um, building his cupboard so uh, that was really cool and uh, other than that, I haven't really spent too much time in the shop since then. I've been trying to work on getting the outside of my cabin sealed up before the uh, winter weather comes and before my hardwood flooring comes in. But that's about it from the uh, going on in my shop. So uh, let's get into some feedback. Uh, Rod Rob had some feedback on episode 34 and then a follow-up question on waxes. So he says, in episode 34, <clears throat> there was a listener question about rust on the shop vise. You discuss using waxes as a film. I've seen a lot of people on woodworking forums insist that wax containing silicone should be avoided at all costs in a wood shop, claiming that silicone can wreak havoc on the finishing stage of a wood-based project. I think I even heard you mention a few brands of waxes that I've also heard explicitly mentioned by name as silicone-laden no-goes for things like table saw top protection. Have you ever had any trouble with a silicone-based wax product used in your shop? Or have you found this to be questionable, contra uh, questionable conventional wisdom? So I would say it's not questionable conventional wisdom. Silicone can cause huge issues with refinishing um, or, or finishing. It usually ends up more of a problem during... Uh, for refinishers because most of the products that are sold in, in grocery stores and things like that um, for furniture polishing like Pledge you know, and all those different sprays all contain silicone. Um, so those are, are bad ideas if you are going to do any type of finishing or refinishing. You really don't want any of that stuff on the surface of the wood. As for the waxes that I mentioned in episode 34, I'm pretty sure none of them contain silicone. So I, I think I mentioned the uh, Minwax paste wax, um, 
the butcher's wax and uh, Johnson paste wax. And they're all designed for furniture. They're all furniture waxes. Um, they are essentially, they're usually some mixture of beeswax and carnauba wax in a solvent. Um, and that's usually about all that they are. I think the other one that I might have mentioned is Renaissance wax. Renaissance wax is a microcrystalline wax. Uh, it's used in the antiques industry a lot to protect furniture as well as metal objects. Um, and I do not believe that has any silicone in it and shouldn't cause a problem. I have never had any problem with any of those waxes when I've applied them to my tools and subsequent finishing issues. Um, I used Renaissance wax on a lot of my metal planes, um, and it does not cause an issue. I use, um, you know, Minwax paste wax and Johnson's paste wax and, and, and butcher's wax. Um, I use I use all four of those different products, um, and I've never had a finishing issue arise from the use of one of those products. And like I said, I'm I'm 99% sure that none of them contain silicone, so that's it's really not an issue. So I think as long as you stick to waxes that are that are supposed to be safe for furniture, then you should be in good shape. Um, but definitely avoid products that do contain silicone, and most of your furniture polishes. Uh, that are sold in, you know, in your, your big box grocery stores and things, you know, basically th things that you're going to spray on like pledge, um, they contain silicone and can certainly wreak havoc, um, with finishing. So let's get into our questions for this week. Our first one comes from Jay he says with Southern yellow pine, should I be able to pair the walls of mortises without using a mallet? If the chisel is sharp enough, should I be able to push the chisel through the end grain? Also, can you talk about the idea of tolerances in hand woodworking? How flat should my workbench legs be? Um, is five thousandths of an inch over three feet of length good enough? So, um, pairing and grain yellow pine. Um, if your chisels are sharp, you certainly should be able to do it. It really comes down to how big a bite you're trying to take. Um, I mean, I've paired hard maple, oak, ebony, all of them through the end grain without much problem. Um, but again, the trick is taking a thin enough cut. The problem with yellow pine is that it has those alternating uh, rings of hard and soft wood. And the hard wood, the hard rings in the yellow pine are really, really hard. Um, just like, you know, maple or ebony or oak would be. So you really need to make sure your chisel is very sharp and you really need to make sure you're taking very, very thin cuts. Um, you may get a false sense of security by starting to pair and getting through the softwood fairly easy, you know, a thick cut in the softwood. And then you hit the hardwood and it's really um, quite dense and doesn't want to pair well. The other problem is usually what happens is you have another ring of softwood underneath that ring of hardwood. So there's a little bit of compression that's happening as you're trying to push the chisel through. And that makes pairing even harder. Um, woods like oak and maple are a pretty consistent density all the way through. So you don't have that, that squishy softwood in between that causes problems. Um, so take a thin enough cut, make sure your chisels are, are shaving sharp, and you should be able to pair that end grain in that yellow pine. As for tolerances, I don't really measure below an eighth or sixteenth of an inch in my shop. Um, I can certainly fit, adjust, and see 
less than that, but in terms of measuring, I don't really measure. So five thousandths of an inch over three feet, um, maybe that's okay. I don't know. I, I, I don't – it's probably fine. Um, when I plane something like a workbench leg or, or a leg for a table, I'm, uh, I'm usually going by sight. So if I need, you know, if I'm going to plane something flat with my joiner plane, I'll use the corner of my joiner plane as a, a, a straight edge, or I'll just use a, a winding stick or a straight piece of wood as a straight edge and check that. And, you know, if I know that the edge of that straight edge is straight, whether it's a ruler or one of my winding sticks or a, a purpose made wooden straight edge, um, when I can't see light underneath, you know, between the straight edge and the edge of that piece of, that I'm planing, then I know it's straight enough. Um, if I see gaps, then I will typically plane those out. You know, if, if it's a joinery surface and I want it to be flat, um, so I don't measure. So you know, I think you can you know you can see a pretty small amount. You know, if you put a straight edge um, or the edge of your plane, the corner of your plane against the surface that you're planing, and you see light, um, you know that's that's a thousandth of an inch or so. So. Um, you know, just because you can see light doesn't necessarily mean it's not flat enough, but I guess the, the point I am getting at is, um, it's really not that difficult to get to that point because, um, you're not worrying about a number. You're just worrying about, is it flat enough to do the work that I need to do? Um, so hold the corner of your plane or the, um, or a straight edge or winding stick up against the surface that you're planing. And if you can't see light between the, uh, the straight edge and the piece that you're planing, then you're probably in good shape. Our next question is a voicemail from Don. Let's listen to that. Hi, Bob. My name is Don Hatcher. I've been listening to your podcasts for a couple months, and I'm enjoying them very much and learning a lot. I have a question about a record 050 plow plane that I bought recently on eBay. It came with a full set of the straight cutters and the beading cutters, but none of them seemed to be the shape I need to reproduce some molding on a piece of furniture I have. I'm attaching a photo of the molding to this email. I think I need a cutter that has a convex shape to it, you know, like the end of my index finger. I have a box of cutters that came with an old multi-purpose plane um, like a Stanley 45. A couple of those have a convex shape to them, so I'm trying to use those in the plow plane. My problem is when I set that convex cutter so that it's just barely higher than the two runners on each side, uh, it stops cutting as soon as those runners touch the surface of the wood. I've attached a photo of the convex iron in the plow plane and you can see that is there a trick to using a convex cutter with one of these planes? The only thing I can think of is to set the cutter for a very light cut then once the uh, runners hit the wood and it stops cutting, reset the cutter for a slightly deeper cut and just keep doing that over and over until I get to the depth I want. Thanks for any tips you might have. 
All right. So I did look at the pictures that Don sent and, uh, and Don, just for, for everybody else's visualization, um, what, what Don's trying to do is, is essentially create a cove type molding. So um, in the wooden plane world, we would use a round plane for that. And as Don described, that would be a molding plane with a convex iron. So the convex iron makes a concave molding. And that's what Don is trying to do with his record number 50. So to answer your question, Don, um, I don't think you're going to have any success using that record number 50 to do what you're trying to do. Um, planes like the Stanley 45, um, and I believe the record 50 might have been uh, a small version of those as well. I'm not sure with all the, the numbers, um, and but I think the record number 50 was more of like a plow and beating plane, sort of like the, the Stanley number 50. Those planes really were not designed for doing molding work. They were designed for doing work with straight blades and beading blades, which are concave blades. Stanley and, uh, and Record, I think first might have been Clifton and then, and then Record, or Preston, or I, I forget which one it was. But anyway, um, they, they both, Stanley and, and Record did both have a combination plane that was designed to make moldings like what you're trying to do. Um, I believe the Stanley version was the number 55, um, and, and maybe the record was the, the O55 or something like that. These, in order to, to use the hollow and round blades that came with those planes, they sold an additional attachment, hollow and round attachments, that essentially put a, a sole on the combination plane instead of a pair of skates. And in order to use the convex blades, to make the concave profiles like you're trying to do, you need to put that that separate molding plane, that molding sole onto the plane. And only the Stanley 55 came with that. The Stanley 45 was not designed to use that, or the, the record 50 that you're using uh, was not designed to use that. So I don't think you're going to be able to make that concave molding with your uh, record number 50, unfortunately. You can try what you were suggesting and, and taking a light cut and then deepening the cut each time. Um, and that might work, but you're gonna need to make sure that the cutter is very well supported by the skates in order to do that. Um, and I think you're going to run into some problems and I think it's just really gonna cause you lots of fits trying to make it work. Um, so my suggestion would be to try and locate a wooden round plane uh, or a wooden molding plane with a concave blade um, and use that instead. It's really a night and day difference. Um, but I don't think you're going to be able to do it with the record number 50 because you just don't have the required parts with that plane to be able to support the, uh, the round blade, the convex blade, below the, the level of the skates of that plane. So our next question comes from Hugo, and he says, I don't understand how a cambered iron would help to square the edge of a board. Uh, wouldn't it leave the edge of the board concave? Why not use a straight iron and just tilt the plane to square the edge? So Hugo, what you're describing is essentially two different ways to approach the same problem. You can just tilt the plane to, uh, 
and you know tilt the plane to be square to the face of the board and plane the edge that way until it comes in the square. The problem with that method is holding that plane consistently square to the edge until you have a surface to rest the sole on. Um, squaring the edge of a board with a straight iron it can be a challenge, especially if you're dealing with uh, an edge that has a twist in it and it's not consistently um, consistently at a square on the same side. The cambered iron works because the, the cambered is not so severe that you're putting a uh, an actual curve or at least a, not a very deep curve in the edge of the board. Essentially what the camber is allowing you to do is to, to take a uh, a shaving that is wedge shaped in cross section so that the part of the shaving that comes out closest to the middle of the plane iron is going to be thicker than the part of the shaving that comes out on the edge of the plane iron. So by taking thicker, to, by placing the center of the plane with the most iron projection over the area that needs to be taken down the most, you gradually reduce the high corner of the edge until it's square or until the whole edge is square to the surface. Now in terms of making a glued up surface, my preference is actually to square the edge first with a cambered iron and then run a plane with a straight iron, whether that be a joiner plane or even a smooth, very lightly cut smooth plane with a straight iron over that edge to remove any hints of minor concavity um, before I, I make that edge joint. Uh, and I find I just get tighter, tighter edge joints that way. Um, it's not necessary if you don't have a lot of camber in the plane that you're using to square up the edge. You can go from using that cambered blade right to the edge joint um, and you'll be perfectly fine. So our last question comes from Alex. He says, I was listening to episode 34 on reference faces. I have a follow-up question. As you mentioned, with older furniture, it's common to see the non-show surfaces left with rough marks. This seems to be commonly accepted and taught, but what I'm wondering is on the bottoms of surfaces that have joinery going into them, how is it possible? I'm thinking of tabletops, bottoms of benches, undersides of cases, etc. It seems to contradict what you were speaking of in the podcast about having the reference faces being the ones that accept the joinery. I like your approach, by the way. It's not something I had heard before, but it makes much more sense and is something I will incorporate into my own work. So Alex, very astute of you. Uh, it's a good question, and it, it tells me you're, you're paying attention and thinking about it. So you are absolutely correct. You will see surfaces that are rough that might be on the inside of a case or, or where there would be joinery. What we will frequently see, though, is that, for example, the end, the uh, a tabletop. Yes, the underside of a tabletop might be left rough, but it's not the entire underside of that tabletop. It's usually just in the center area where it's not contacting the aprons. The area of the um, the overhang of the table will often be plain smooth, where you would, might put your hands. Um, and the area where it sits on top of the legs and on top of the aprons will typically be planed smooth or at least flat or flat enough that the tabletop can sit flat on the aprons. But then if you reach your hand in or you look underneath the table, you'll see that that section, that area inside the aprons um, has been planed rough and, and oftentimes hollow. And the reason for this is so that there's less of, a, of an area that you have to worry about being flat and square and coplanar in order to make that joint seal up. 
Uh, think about it sort of like undercutting the shoulders of a tenon. The, the, other than the outside edge or the outside, you know, 32nd of an inch of that tenon shoulder, the rest of that shoulder doesn't really matter. You can undercut it. You can chew it away with a, a gouge or a knife or, or whatever, and it doesn't really matter. What matters is that outside edge of the tenon shoulder so that it closes tight um, and we don't see any gaps. A lot of interior casework was done the same way. The casework could have been planed just in the areas where the joinery was going to go. If you're making a chest of drawers, for example, you could plane, let, let's say you were making a chest of drawers with uh, you know, three banks of drawers. So you had three drawers from top to bottom, which means you would typically have uh, four dividers. You would have the dividers or three dividers. Um, you would have the dividers between each of the three drawers, so that would be two dividers. And then you'd have one at the top um, that would tie the top of the case together. Well, you could plane straight across just in the areas where those dividers were going to go and just make sure that those sections were flat and use a pair of winding sticks just to make sure that they were coplanar. And then all that wood in between those two areas where you were going to plow dados for the dividers could be rough planed. And in fact, the area where the dividers were going to go would not have to be super smooth. It would just have to be flat and straight. A little bit of tear out wouldn't really be a big deal. As long as the, uh, those areas where you're going to put the dados are, are flat enough and straight enough for the joinery. So yes, we do see uh, the inside of cases rough plane sometimes, but there's a difference between um, rough planed as in not smooth and not perfectly, you know, tear out free um, and, you know, just rough like, uh, like the backboards of a case might just be hogged out with a foreplane. Typically when there's joinery involved, you'll at least have seen a triplane or joiner plane passed over that area to make that part of the case or that part of the table top um, or whatever the piece is, um, to make that part flat and straight and coplanar with the other parts that need to be, um, that are going to make contact with the table aprons or, or with the drawer runners or whatever. Um, and then the rest of the inside of the case could be rough. So um, it just saves you some work by not having to flatten and thickness the entire inside of the case um, or the entire underside of the tabletop. Um, so yeah, you, you know, you will see that, um, but look closely and I think you'll find that where the joinery was, um, at least there is going to be a little bit more flat and straight going on, not necessarily smooth, but flat and straight. So that's all the questions they have for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the contact form. So today's main topic is on sliding dovetails, and it was a topic suggested by Damian King. So let's listen to Damian's question. Hi, Bob. Damian here, Hudson Valley, New York. I had a suggestion for a topic. I was wondering if maybe you'd talk a little bit about sliding dovetail, its applications, benefits, uh, difficulty, and specifically the techniques you use for cutting them. All right. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate everything you do. So keep up the great work. Stay sharp. 
So thanks for that topic suggestion, Damien. Uh, sliding dovetails are always a always a, a fun thing to think about. Um, they're they're a neat joint, uh, but what's surprising is as much as as people seem to talk about them today, um, is how how absent they are from a lot of at least Anglo-American furniture. Um, you know, you you do see them used quite a bit in continental. European furniture, but in terms of furniture that was coming out of England and the and the U.S., when we look at antique furniture, we don't see sliding dovetails a whole lot. Um, and when we do see them, we don't tend to see them in applications um, where you would be making a sliding dovetail across the entire width of a board, for example. Um, so let, let's take something like a, a drawer divider for a chest of drawers or, you know, like a dust board. Um, you won't typically see a sliding dovetail the entire 18-inch depth of that case. Usually what you would see is um, a short section of sliding dovetail about an inch or so long just at the front of the case and then a straight dado for the rest of the way. But let's back up a second. So, um, you know, where, uh, what what advantages or, or you know, what what does the sliding dovetail do for us that other methods of joinery can't? Um, well, if we think about it in terms of, of how you might want to use it, um, going back to that drawer divider um, example, if we were to just take, build a bookshelf, let's say, and we cut dados or rabbits or whatever in the side to receive the shelves, we could put the shelves in that dado and They'll stay there, but they're going to need some help, either from glue, but you know, most likely we're typically going to glue the shelves in, into those dados, but probably also a little bit of extra support, and that could be in the form of nails that are driven through the outside of the case uh, to help hold the shelves in place, and oftentimes those nails are driven in at an angle um, so that they help to prevent the, the case from pulling apart and the, and the shelf from pulling out. Those nails could also be toenailed um, from the underside of the shelf on the inside of the case into the case sides. Um, and again, that serves the same purpose to help the shelves from pulling out of the dado. Well, with a sliding dovetail, you could slide those shelves in and the joinery itself would lock the shelves in place and you wouldn't need to use glue and you wouldn't need to, um, you wouldn't need to, to use any type of fasteners or any other method to help to secure that piece in place. So from a theoretical perspective, it's a great way to build stuff. It's a, it's a great joint. And again, we do see it pretty commonly in continental European furniture. Um, but we don't tend to see it in a lot of English and American antique furniture. Um, and there's speculation as to why that is. Um, I think part of the reason is that the, the English... Um, and, and the colonials just didn't de really develop tools that made making a sliding dovetail um, easy or efficient. Um, if you've ever tried to make a sliding dovetail with hand tools, you probably are aware that it's not exactly the easiest joint in the world to make. Um, if you make a straight sliding dovetail, that is a, a dovetail that is the the you know, 18 inches long in the, the same width or thickness 
from the front to the back of the case, you'll probably find that that joint is going to bind up quite frequently as you're trying to fit the joint and slide that shelf into position. Um, and that makes it tough because you you do end up doing a lot of fitting, trying to figure out where the, jo the joint is tight and remove material only in those places where the joint is too tight because if you then go and remove too much material from the wrong area, the joint becomes too loose and it doesn't serve its purpose of holding everything together tightly. So it can be a quite a finicky joint. Um, another place where you might see it is to attach a top. Maybe you could put a sliding dovetail on the top of case sides and then uh, a sliding dovetail on the underside of say a case top. And then you would, you would uh, slide that case top on from the, from the front of the case. So your case top would have a stopped sliding dovetail that stopped maybe an inch and a half short of the front of the top. And you could then slide the dovetail over the case sides towards the back. Um, and that would give you a way to secure the case top to the, uh, to the case itself without the use of any mechanical fasteners um, like buttons or screws or nails or anything like that. Uh, but again, you're talking about a very long joint, a very long um, joint that has to be fit very precisely in order to not have a loose joint. Well, one of the solutions to that problem is to create a tapered sliding dovetail. So to do this, you create a dovetail, sliding dovetail that is wider um, at the entry side than it is at the uh, at the opposite side where where the the part is uh, is going to lock up. So essentially, it becomes almost like a um, like a conical chair joint where the the further you drive it in, the tighter that joint gets. The benefit of this is that you can make a joint that goes together very easily for just about the entire length of the uh, that long sliding dovetail and then the last inch or, inch or so that dovetail starts to lock up and get tight so um, the whole thing comes together tightly only for the last little bit and that makes it a little bit easier to to fit because you don't have to worry so much um, about splitting and, and things like that because uh, you're only going to fit it up right at the very end. So, uh, And you don't have to worry about trying to adjust and fit a joint over its entire length. Um, one easy method of making these by hand is actually to make a half sliding dovetail. Um, and that's similar to a sliding dovetail except you only cut the dovetail angled section on one half of the edge of the board. Um, and that allows, again, for a little bit less fitting. The other side would just be a straight dado. Um, so, yeah, that's, you know, some of the benefits are that they can hold very securely without the, uh, the aid of additional, uh, additional mechanical fasteners or without any glue. Um, and they could make for, um, they would make for nice uh, takedown furniture. I actually have a bookcase design that I want to do um, that is, it, it's designed to be completely takedown and flat pack, and then it gets put together completely with sliding dovetails and through uh, tusk tenons so that the whole thing can be wedged up, sliding dovetails to, uh, to help lock things together, 
and it ends up nice and, and sturdy and secure. Uh, and then if you move or you want to, you know, you, you sell it and somebody needs to move it and put it in a small car, you can knock the wedges out of the mortise and tenon. You can slide the dovetails apart. The whole thing can pack flat um, and you can reassemble it later. Um, but yeah, let, so let's let's talk a little bit about how to make these because um, it, it's not always that obvious. You, you If you use a power router, obviously it's pretty easy. You just chuck up a bit in your router, you run it along a straight edge and you've got, you know, your dovetail socket. Um, and then you just have to make the, uh, the other part to fit. Usually that would be done in a router table. But what if you want to make them by hand? Well, as mentioned before, the first thing I would recommend is that you make them tapered instead of a straight sliding dovetail, because a tapered sliding dovetail is much easier to fit than a straight sliding dovetail. And when I make them, uh, I like to start my my measurement at the back or where where the dovetail is going to be the thickest. So let's say, just to make life simple for a verbal explanation, let's say we're working with a one-inch thick shelf. So at the back, I want that joint to max out at just under an inch wide at the deepest part of the dovetail. And the reason for that is because you're going to take a little bit of material off as you're fitting and as you're sawing and chiseling. So you want to make sure that the tail at the back, um, you know, you don't want to make that socket too wide because if you make the socket too wide at the back, well, then you're going to end up, um, driving that shelf in further than you should. So I would actually start if you're, if you've got a one eighth inch, I mean, sorry, a one inch thick shelf, make the deepest part of your dovetail about seven eighths of an inch wide at its deepest part. And that's going to allow you some room for fitting later on. The one side of your dovetail, if you're going to, if you're making a shelf, let's say the top part of the sliding dovetail is going to be straight and square to the side of the case. Uh, and I'm trying to think of the best way to describe this. Um, you know, we'll use a, a bookshelf as an example where you're going to slide a shelf in from the back of the bookshelf. So the top part of that sliding dovetail would be straight and square to the side of the case. So you can go ahead and lay out your dovetail in such a way that you draw your dovetail socket on the back edge of the case side. Make the deepest part of that sliding dovetail uh, socket about seven eighths of an inch wide and maybe about half the thickness, half as deep as the uh, thickness of the case side. For argument's sake, let's say we're using one inch case sides, so make your sliding dovetail socket depth about a half an inch. So you've got about a half inch deep, seven eighth inch wide um, at the bottom. Then you can just use your bevel and transfer your dovetail angle, whatever that may be, whatever angle you like, from the widest parts of the sliding dovetail. Um, transfer it up to the surface of the case side and that's going to give you the cross section of your sliding dovetail socket at the back of the case. From there, you can draw a straight square line from the top part of that sliding dovetail to the front of the case. Now what you've got is a sliding dovetail that is wide at, at the back, but you don't have the front laid out yet. 
to lay out that taper, I would take whatever the distance is at the face of the case where the dovetail angle, where the dovetail socket is narrowest. Take that distance at the back of the case and subtract about a, I don't know, about subtract maybe a sixteenth of an inch. And you're going to transfer that to the front of the case. The dovetail angle at the top in the front of the case is going to be the same as it was at the back. So you can, again, come straight down, draw a line straight along the edge from your case, from the face of your case, down a half an inch, and then lay in the, the first dovetail angle at the top. Then measure the distance from the back, the distance between the narrow portion of the socket at the back. Transfer that distance to the front, but one sixteenth of an inch less than it is from the back. And then draw in your second line for your dovetail. So now what you have is a tail that is going to be straight and square at the top, but at the bottom it's going to taper because once you connect the lines from the back of the case to the front of the case, you're going to find that that bottom line is drawn in at an angle. Similarly, at the front of the case, when you connect your two dovetail lines at the bottom of the dovetail socket, it's going to be narrower than 7 eighths of an inch, most likely about a sixteenth of an inch narrower. And that's where your taper is coming from. So the top part of the sliding dovetail is straight and square to the case sides. The bottom part of the sliding dovetail is going to angle from the back of the case low at the back of the case to higher at the front of the case. That is going to give you your starting point. You can then um, clamp a straight edge along that line. And what I like to do is use a sawing guide. And my sawing guide is essentially a, no more than a, a piece of wood that is planed with a bevel at the same angle that I'm cutting my dovetails. Then I'll clamp that along the line that I'm making the dovetails. And that's going to give me a place that I can hold my back saw against while I'm sawing the shoulders of that dovetail socket. Saw the square side first. Again, holding the saw against that beveled board that's going to hold the saw at the proper angle. Saw the top side down to the correct depth. Move that, um, that sawing guide to the opposite shoulder line. Saw the opposite shoulder of the dovetail socket down. Now again, that one will be at an angle. It won't be square to the case side. Saw that down to proper depth. And then you're just going to remove all that material in there with a chisel and clean it up with a router plane. And that's going to give you your socket. That is the easy part. The next part is going to be fitting the dovetail to the dovetail on the, the shelf to the socket in the case side. So to do this, I start by laying out the straight part of the tail itself. I'll start by laying out, by putting the board against the case side, against the socket, and you can actually trace with a pencil, trace the socket onto the edge of the shelf board. And that's going to give you your starting point. Your ending point is going to be done in a similar way, but you're not going to be able to just put the board up there because it's going to be mirror imaged if you do. So you just kind of have to lay it out 
just like you did on the K side. And that's what makes the sliding dovetail a little challenging is that you can't really mark one piece from the other with this type of sliding dovetail when you're going to do a tapered sliding dovetail full length. But that's where the taper really helps is that if your layout was off just a little bit, you can make some adjustment. So once you do the layout in the same way that you did it on the case side, do that layout on the end grain of your sliding dovetail on the shelf, those shoulders can be sawed square. And then you're going to use a chisel to chisel down, chisel the waist at the proper dovetail angle down to the shoulder line. Um, and there's no real easy way to do this. I usually just pair across the grain um, and take my time. Um, and, and generally, it, it's a slow process. And once I've pared down to my layout lines, then I begin the fitting process. And I'll put the shelf in, see where it seems to be getting tight. You can usually see some burnishing on the wood where it's tight and it needs to have material paired away. You remove the shelf. You pare away the burnished areas, you try it again. And it's a continual process of just seeing where it's tight, um, paring that material away until it fits properly. What I will also do typically is to make my shelves extra wide. So if my case side is 18 inches wide and I'm making this bookcase where I'm going to slide this shelf in, I'll make that shelf maybe two inches wider than the case side, so 20 inches. What that's going to do is it's going to give me a little bit of, uh, of play, uh, a little room for error. Because if, let's say, I made the narrow end of my tail a little bit too narrow, well, I'm going to end up pushing the front of the shelf past the front of the case. No big deal. I've got extra length. I just scribe a line at the front of the case, and I can rip that shelf down so that it'll be flush with the front of the case. Um, so... By doing that, I give myself a little bit of extra room um, to correct any errors or, or you know, if I paired too far or my, my tail is a little bit too narrow at the front, um, I can fix that problem. So always give yourselves a little bit extra on the tailboard so that way when you slide them together, um, if, it's, if the fit doesn't come up tight before the front of the shelf board is flush with the front of the case, um, you can push the front of that shelf board past the front edge of the case and still have some to trim off and rip off and, uh, and give you a good tight fit. So that's how I would do a tapered sliding dovetail, a long tapered sliding dovetail like that. And I know it's very difficult to describe in a, on a podcast and I hope it made sense. The other type of sliding dovetail that I typically see and that I would typically do would be on a drawer divider for a chest of drawers. And that's really only in um, about an inch inch or so deep. So in those cases, you're, what you're usually going to find is that your sliding dovetail is actually also inside of a, a dado. Because you would plow a dado through the side of the case for your drawer runners and your dust boards to fit into. That just a dado through most of the case for your front drawer blade. Let's say your front drawer blade is three inches wide. Well, the front inch of that, you would cut a sliding dovetail and this would be a straight sliding dovetail, not a, um, not a tapered sliding dovetail. And in this case, I would cut the dovetail first, not the socket because by cutting the dovetail itself first on the front edge of that drawer blade, 
I can slide the drawer blade into the dado and the overhanging dovetail on the ends would then butt up against the front of the case and I could trace the outline of that dovetail onto the front edge of the case and then use my chisel um, to remove the material to fit that particular dovetail for that particular drawer blade. Um, so, and if you understand the process of making a sliding dovetail along the full length of a, a board's edge, then that should be absolutely no problem. And that's what we typically see in, in most American and English furniture um, is, the, is that short sliding dovetail that just holds, uh, goes on the drawer blades and just holds the front of the case tight together. And that's really the, the benefit of that sliding dovetail in that scenario um, is that you're holding the front of the case together and keeping the sides from bowing out over time. So I know that was uh, probably a lot to try to take in in a podcast, in an, in an audio podcast, um, but I, I did think it was a good question. Um, and sliding dovetails are always uh, you know, one of those topics that gets a lot of thought and a lot of people talk about it, but not too many people actually make them because of the, the challenge in doing so. So um, hopefully um, I at least have encouraged you to give it a try. Um, obviously, you're probably not going to be able to uh, go out in your shop and, and cut a whole bunch of sliding dovetails just from my description in an audio podcast, but hopefully I've given you a, a good general idea in terms of how I go about the process. Um, and if it's something you're interested in, it'll it'll give you a jumping off point to do a little bit more research and uh, and give it a try for yourself because it, it can be a pretty cool joint. Well, you know, it doesn't have that many uh, uses in most of the things that I build. I don't use the joint all that often. Um, it can be it can be a fun one to experiment with and and try out. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or you can use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt035. And in the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show. And you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal. And you'll find links to do all those things on the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening. Until next time, stay sharp, everybody.